Welcome to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Every month we extend happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. We count that as anything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This, as ever, is your devoted host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse Film Discussion Group. And if you have just found our show, welcome. If you're a regular listener, we are, of course, thrilled that you're back. The motion picture industry has been churning out romantic comedies by the bucket load for generations, and audiences continue to eat them up, with 7 in 10 Americans acknowledging that they are fans of the rom-com genre, according to recent polling by YouGov. Of the thousands of rom-coms produced since the talking era of movies, there's one that stands head and shoulders above the rest based on award recognition, historical popularity, and critical scores. And that film is It Happened One Night, directed by Frank Capra and originally released on February 22, 1934. Regarded by many as both the first major rom-com and screwball comedy, It Happened One Night is the only romantic comedy to sweep up the top five Oscars for Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay. In fact, it's one of only three films from any genre to earn that rare distinction. On Rotten Tomatoes, It Happened One Night earns a superb 98% fresh rating and an average critical score of 9.1 out of 10, while also ranking on the site as the fifth best romantic comedy ever made. So for Valentine's Day and the month known for Cupid, it's only fitting that we pay tribute to this now 90-year-old rom-com classic. Joining me in the celebration this time around, it's going to be San Francisco State University film professor, cinema historian, biographer, screenwriter, and author, Joseph McBride, who makes a record fifth appearance on Cineversary. Joseph and I will examine how this beloved work remains a classic, its influence on later films, what it reveals about Frank Capra, and much, much more. Now, it's customary on this show to take a brief moment to better understand when, why, and how our given film got made. But truth is, my guest does a fantastic job providing the necessary background and context, so we'll dispense with the usual Wikipedia prelim. Instead, what do you say we hop aboard a vintage Greyhound bus time machine in the form of the film's original trailer? How do you expect to get to New York at the rate you're going? business. You're on a budget from now on. Not just a minute. You Shut up. You've got a name, haven't you? Yeah, I got a name. Peter Warren. Peter Warren. I don't like it. Don't let it bother you. You're giving it back to me in the morning. Take me with you, Peter. Take me to your island. I want to do all those things you talked about. You'd better go back to your bed. Make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're such a smart Alex. Nobody knows anything but you. 
I'll stop a car and I won't use my thumb. What are you going to do? The system on my own. Okay, you know what's coming next. I'm obliged to caution you that Joe and I will be taking the scenic route through It Happened One Night and making a few spoiler-tastic stops along the way. So if you have yet to screen the film and don't want key plot points revealed, why not get better acquainted with said film post-haste? Here's some further encouragement from Claudette Colbert. Seems to me you're doing excellently without any assistance. Everybody ready? Here comes McBride. Guide. Returning to the Cineversary microphone is Joseph McBride, a film professor at San Francisco State University, cinema historian, biographer, screenwriter, and author of several books, including Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, and, frankly, Unmasking Frank Capra. Joe, we're so happy you've decided to join us again on Cineversary. Well, thank you, Eric. It was good being with you before, talking about Citizen Kane, one of my favorite films. That's right. Also, Quiet Man, The Grapes of Wrath, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. You, sir, are the longest-running and most returning guest we've ever had on our show. Oh, this is all good to hear. Thank you. Happened One Night is very good. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I, I watched it again in preparation for this show, and I have um, very few uh, qualms about it. The, the only thing I think doesn't work is the casting of Claudia Colbert's um, fiance, but we could talk about that. <laughs> yeah, it is an interesting casting choice. Yeah. But the important thing is, it sounds like we're we're on the same page. The, the main leads, Gable and Colbert, are, are wonderfully cast. Would you briefly tell us like uh, how this film came to be cast and why that's important? Yeah, uh, and this was kind of known over the years, but I did more research on it for my Capra biography that I think what makes this film work, the chemistry of Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable is is really what makes it work. Um, it keeps it very fresh and popular. Uh, but they had a lot of trouble casting the film, and this happens uh, you know, uh, more often than we realize. Uh, sure. They wind up with people they didn't expect. Capra wanted um, Robert Montgomery and Myrna Loy as his first two choices. Uh-huh. And uh, Louis B. Mayer at MGM wouldn't loan out Robert Montgomery, even though he owed Columbia a loan out of an actor because Capra had been at MGM in 1932 working on a film which sounds very strange, called Soviet, which was going to be set in the USSR, and it was going to be about the conflict of a um, an American engineer played by Clark Gable um, and a communist commissar building a dam played by Wallace Beery. No kidding. Hmm. It fell apart predictably. But anyway, Robert Montgomery was uh, t- too important for MGM to loan to Columbia, which was a kind of a second-rate studio. And um, Myrna Loy turned down the film... And then Miriam Hopkins turned it down. Margaret Sullivan turned it down. Capra went to Constance Bennett, who wanted to buy the project and produce it herself. Betty Davis wanted to do it, but Warner Brothers was punishing her at the time and wouldn't Amazing. wouldn't allow her to do it. Yeah. Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia, suggested Loretta Young, who was awfully good in Capra's Platinum Blonde, but Capra was not interested. Then Harry Cohn suggested Carol Lombard, who would have been terrific in the film. Uh, Capra offered her the role. Robert Riskin was actually dating Carol Lombard at the time, but she turned it down right? wow. be- because of a schedule conflict. Hmm. So um, 
MGM punished Clark Gable by because he was being difficult about salary demands and also his career was kind of stuck in second leads playing gangster type characters and so they sent him to Columbia as a punishment and he only got ten thousand dollars for being in the film. Claudette Colbert was suggested by Harry Cohn and Joe Walker, the cinematographer of it happened when I told me that Capra had made a film with Colbert, a silent film called For the Love of Mike, which is a lost film. And Joe Walker said Capra and Colbert ended up hating each other. So she turned down the role because she was going to go skiing on a vacation, but they kept offering her more money. And finally, they paid her $50,000 for a film that only cost $325,000. And she had additional payments if the film went into overtime. And Clark Gable complained she made more in overtime than I made for the picture. Wow. She and Capra never got along. Uh, and during the making of it happened one night, she was complaining a lot and she was unpopular with the crew and they thought she was haughty. And I talked to her about the film and she had some very interesting comments to make about it. And only as, as it went along did she realize she was making a good film, but she she was never really very high on it. And she won the Academy Award for Best Actress, but she didn't think she would win. So she was going on her delayed vacation and she got she was at the train station and the studio publicist called her up and said, you won the Oscar. This is, <laughs> this is the days when they told people they won before the public knew. They rushed her with a police escort to the to the uh, Oscar ceremony, and she accepted in her uh, traveling clothes. She got the award from Shirley Temple, of all people. <laughs> but I talked to her about the film, and she realized, obviously, later this was a terrific film. But um, I was kind of responsible for reuniting her with Capra when we did the AFI Life Achievement Award tribute to Capra in 1982. I went to New York to visit Colbert to try to talk her into coming to the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Capra wanted her to come, and um, so I, I kind of mended those fences, and she came, and she was very gracious, and, and uh, she was one of the highlights of the program. That's fantastic. Wow. Great storytelling. Really appreciate the background and the context there. So let's go deeper here, Joe. Why is It Happened One Night worth celebrating? It's 90 years now. So what makes it a great cinematic work? Well, one of the things is it's a very influential film to take a broad view of it because uh, it kicked off the romantic comedy genre which had been a bit dormant for a few years, and also as elements of the screwball comedy in it, which was a trend that kind of erupted a little later in the 30s. Right. I think the movie remains timeless for delving into topics like class privilege and socioeconomic disparities, as well as the universal quest for happiness. These are messages that particularly struck a chord with audiences of the Great Depression, and its examination of these themes, presented with both depth and levity, I think it imbued the film with substance and raised it above the rank of frivolous entertainment expected from a romantic comedy for 1934. It happened when night was unusual. Claudette Colbert told me that they didn't call them romantic comedies then, they called them high comedies. And that's a term from the theater. And uh, she was making high comedies at Paramount where she was under contract. And she worked, for example, with Ernst Lubitsch and The Smiling Lieutenant, which is a wonderful movie. Um, but it was a very glamorous uh, film, and she'd also made uh, Cleopatra for Cecil B. DeMille, which is very uh, lavish pictorially and very sexy and everything. Okay. 
But Columbia was this second-tier studio. They didn't own um, theaters, which meant they had to rely on other people to exhibit their films. And they were kind of a ratty-looking studio. She gave the impression that she felt she was slumming at Columbia. And she told me that she didn't understand this film because she, she, she didn't have any fancy clothing to wear. <laughs> Um, she only had four outfits and they were rather run-of-the-mill uh, traveling suit. And most of the film is kind of shabby looking because they're riding a bus and she's a fugitive uh, heiress. Mm -hmm. It started that fugitive heiress sub-cycle of the romantic comedy film too. There a lot of people write about that. And so it's a very influential film. It, it kind of, it was a sleeper hit with the public. Um, it was kind of a B movie and uh uh, I, you know, I interviewed most of the surviving Capra crew, and only Robert Riskin, the screenwriter, and Capra were excited about the film. The other people thought this is a piece of garbage, and why are we making this film? Wow! And they started shooting at the bus station downtown, which is not exactly a very glamorous location, you know. They they had a short shooting schedule, and but as it went along, Clark Gable got really into the film right away. He understood Capra changed Clark Gable's career too. This is a very important influential thing. Uh, besides the fact that there were many imitations of it happened one night, and there still are. The other big influential romantic comedy of that period was The Awful Truth with Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. Of course, that was three years later, so this this preceded that. Yeah, and the, actually the, the film that started the romantic comedy genre in Hollywood was Ernst Lubitsch's silent film, The Marriage Circle, 1925, which was extremely influential, but they kind of veered away from it. And this was a proletarian story. This is why it clicked with the Depression-era audience. This was in the depths of the Depression, you had this runaway heiress who was, Claudia Colbert was a very glamorous looking woman, uh, very beautiful, and but she had a kind of aristocratic veneer, uh, not a veneer, it was, that's who she was, and um, she was French. Uh, Capra would refer to her as the French girl, he could never remember her <laughs> name. He said, by the way, he told me, he said she had the best figure of any actress in Hollywood, he was very impressed by that. He has a couple of scenes where she's taking her clothes off behind the walls of Jericho. And oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. She fought him over those. She didn't want to strip down, but he kept persuading her to take more off. And in fact, she fought him about showing her leg, but then when they brought in the double, from what I read, she said, no, it's going to be my leg. Yeah, that's, an, that's the correct story. Um, and she has this very shapely leg where uh, it's a famous scene where she stops a car when she's hitchhiking. It's just a wonderful uh, sidekick. Absolutely. But then Clark Abel was, uh, you know, a very handsome guy, but he played these sort of tough gangster characters. And that did not give him range for his great charm and humor that he had. And Capra brought those qualities out of him. And I think that's why he um, really enjoyed the film. And the crew members said he, he became friendly with them right away and he was really enjoying himself and he felt kind of relaxed after being at MGM was a big impersonal factory and Columbia was kind of a funky place to work. So let me ask you this. You've already laid a, a strong case for you know why this is a milestone movie in its time. Is it fair to say, I mean, of course, Colbert, it sounds like she's already established by this time, but does this film elevate not only Gable, not only Capra, but also Columbia <laughs> as a studio? Yeah. Is it remarkable in those three areas in particular as far as bringing them up a notch? Yeah, and um, they were not among the handful of really big studios like Paramount, MGM, mm -hmm. Warner Brothers, etc., who had their own... Um, theater chains. What caused Hollywood to kind of fall apart in the, in the 1940s is when the Justice Department 
force the studios to divorce from their theater chains. And right. that's how they were able to make films with a virtual guarantee of profits because they could control the booking of the films and um, extort the um, payments that they wanted. So Columbia was uh, second rate, but it made it, it was a great place for Capra because he was the big cheese at Columbia. That's right. In fact, he had his most successful run of crowd-pleasing movies uh, in the 1930s for Columbia. Yeah, well, he made, oh gosh, how many films? Uh, 25 films for Columbia between 1927 and 1939. And his autobiography, which is pretty much a work of fiction, is called The Name Above the Title. But he didn't get his name above the title on a film until the 24th of the 25 films he made for Columbia, which was... <laughs> Can't take it with you. Yeah. <laughs> Can't take it with you. Um, and Jimmy Jimmy Stewart told me he thought the reason Capra's career faltered, there were many reasons, but he said leaving Columbia was, was um, very unfortunate for Capra. He thought he would have more freedom elsewhere, but it turned out he had as much freedom as he would ever have under the sort of benign dictatorship of Harry Cohn, who was, who was known as a rough, uncouth character, and there's some very bad stories about him, but he respected Capra's talents, and he kind of gave him pretty much free reign uh, under certain conditions. Uh, he let Capra spend a million dollars, uh, over a million dollars, on Bitter Tea of General Yen, which was the most money Columbia had ever spent on a film, which is astonishing. Is that right? Oh. From 1933, but the film flopped. That was Capra's big bid to get an Oscar. He had this obsession with winning an Oscar, and it was too good a film to win an Oscar. And uh, so he he was going into this one with it was kind of a potboiler. As a matter of fact, the film they wanted to make, he and Riskin, was Mutiny on the Bounty. I read that. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And, uh, Harry Cohn um, wouldn't pay the um, amount of money that it would have cost to get the rights. And so the film was made by MGM. Yeah, the next year. Starred Clark Gable, who gave another terrific performance. And, and But, you know, Gable's screen personality took off after it happened one night. That's uh, Yeah, that's remarkable. Again, it's so interesting to trace the trajectories of these three different elements, the, the studio, Gable, and Capra making the world t take more notice of these talents and this studio. I mean, it's it's no small feat. It, one movie really catapulted several different uh, facets. Yeah, and uh, the big thing about the film in that sense, not only was it a sleeper hit financially, it made a, a lot of money in 1934. It was the first film that won the five major Academy Awards, which are the Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Screenplay, and Best Director. And now that's a significant milestone in Oscar history because it established the film as a trailblazer. I mean, you consider that after it happened one night, only two other films have achieved that same feat, and, and that includes One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, 1975, and The Silence of the Lambs, 1991. Now, whatever stock you put into the fairness or unfairness of the Oscars, it's still a, a quite amazing feat to win the top five. Yeah, it's it's an amazing feat. It was a big deal because Columbia won the Best Picture Oscar, which, you know, is a big prize. But it put, put them in the big time and um, gave them uh, more clout with um, exhibitors, etc. And um, Capra increased his budgets. Then he made Mr. Deeds, which um, he won um, another Oscar for directing that. And then he won an Oscar for directing You Can't Take It With You. He won three Oscars in five years. He, he was he was kind of the celebrity director of the 30s, if you think about yeah. it. Yeah. The hardware and the uh, prestige. And he really was, was a household name in many circles by that time. It had a terrible effect on his life and career and kind of led to his, all the problems he had later. It's kind of like Citizen Kane 
you know, most people think failure will cause you a lot of problems, but sometimes success causes you terrible problems. No, that's true. As Capra said to me, suddenly your people in the interior of Asia know your name and they know who you are. And, and he said he'd been working for that his whole life. He wanted fame. He wanted glory. He wanted money. He wanted prestige. When he got it, it, it sent him into a tailspin psychologically, and he almost died soon after that. And um, it caused him basic anxiety. He was a very anxious fellow anyway, but he began to think, how can I top this great success? That causes people terrible self-consciousness. Yeah. Once you reach the top of Mount Everest, how can you top that, so to speak, right? It's kind of that effect. And yeah, that's a sad story, and it happens relatively early in that streak of his. So it's an interesting kind of subplot to what's going on here. I want to talk briefly about how this advanced the screwball. You can make a case that there were some predecessors, something like Three-Cornered Moon from 1933. Some historians say that's one of the earliest screwballs, maybe Bombshell from the same year with Gene Harlow. You mentioned Platinum Blonde. But this is the film that likely helped put screwballs on the map, thanks to things like its superior quality compared to those maybe earlier works, its immense popularity at the box office, as you were talking about, and its enduring legacy. It helps, I think, introduce several key characteristics of the screwball comedy, a subgenre that's known for things like farcical situations in stories, themes highlighting the differences between upper and lower socioeconomic classes, a plot centered sometimes on courtship or marriage. There's often a strong-willed or determined or, or even tomboyish female lead in a lot of these films. Fast pacing, physical humor, slapstick at times, quirky, colorful side characters that populate the story. That's certainly true to some extent here with characters like Shapely and Danker, the singing thief and the various motel owners, right? But it, it also screwballs, they'll sometimes touch on things like uh, mistaken identity, misunderstanding, keeping of an important secret. And the Criterion Collection edition of It Happened One Night, Molly Haskell has a great featurette in which she says, Films before It Happened One Night, the romantic comedies, they really hadn't been silly. Here, the leads could be silly and also be incredibly romantic. So it's interesting because in that featurette, they were arguing whether this is truly a screwball or not. And I think the summation was, yes, it is, but with some exceptions. So where do you fall on that line? Is this a true screwball or is this kind of an early precursor to what became the screwball? Well, I think most of the characteristics, if not all of them you mentioned, were true of the romantic comedy genre. Mm -hmm. In Hollywood, they referred to it as the unfinished F-word kind of films because it, it was after the code came in that the screwball comedy flourished because you could not show characters having sexual relations on the screen. Mm -hmm. It had to get very coy. And, you know, there was censorship before 1934, but the code came in in the summer of 34. And so the pre-code films were much uh, sexier but after that, they uh, even uh, married couples had to sleep in separate beds. And, yes. and it happened one night, Capra and Riskin get, get around those problems quite cleverly by having the couple be unmarried, but living, you know, in motels. And they have the famous Walls of Jericho scene where they're in separate beds and Gable puts a blanket up between them. And uh, in a way, that's kind of mocking the code. But um, what happened with the screwball comedy, and I think this is why this film is not exactly, well, it's sort of a screwball because there's a lot of antagonism between the two characters. And mm -hmm. sometimes in romantic comedies, you have that where people start out not getting along and they wind up falling in love or 
in uh, Awful Truth, for example, uh, they're a married couple and they're getting divorced and then they fall back in love. That that plot has been copied dozens of times. Oh, sure. But I don't like screwball comedies with a few exceptions. I'm, I'm unusual in that regard. I know it's a popular genre because I find it, I find them pretty sexist. And so you have the characters, as Andrew Saris pointed out, the men and the women hating each other instead of having sex and they're throwing each other around and you don't have that in this film because Gable is a gentleman and um, he's treating Colbert with respect and she's she's a snooty rich woman and she at first kind of looks down on him because he's a, a scruffy newspaper man. Although he does tell her to shut up and he demeans her, he calls her brat, which is probably fair and he spanks her and I guess that's part of the, part of the playful repartee or whatever, but... There are some scenes where he he talks demeaningly to her. Yeah, but I mean, that's part of conflict is part of drama, and you mm -hmm. have to have conflict. I mean, she talks very demeaningly to Gable all the way through uh, until the until later. The, the turning point is when they're out in a field together and they have to spend the night together in a in, in haystacks. And it's very sexy, very romantic, and Jill Walker's cinematography in the moonlight is very beautiful, but... Um, there's a lot of antagonism between these two people, which is a characteristic of Screwball. And as you say, he does uh, smack her at one point, and that's the kind of thing that happened a lot in 30s films that today would be considered, uh, you know, Clark Gable would be arrested for doing that or something. <laughs> I mean, he even tells her father, like, she needs a good sock on the jaw. Yeah. And, of course, we don't see him do that. But, again, this is a very patriarchal society where women are more subjugated. Yeah, although, you know, what happens, and it happened one night, is it starts with her fleeing her father, who, um, you know, she's escaping if you want to call it patriarchy, he's a rich father, but he turns out to be a very nice guy, actually. And, um, you know, it's interesting because Capra and Riskin, one of the reasons their films were popular is they, they made fun of rich people uh, during the Depression that resonated with the audience. And So true. Um, uh, Walter Connolly's he slaps his daughter early in the film. And she, but there's a Capra was was a very feminist director in that period, actually. And he shows the father, there's a close-up of him looking very upset that he slapped her. He gave vent to his emotions, you know. She, what does she do? She runs away, jumps off the boat and, and uh, escapes. And, and so he's sending out detectives after her. But it, he winds up being a, a really likable figure and he helps her to escape her uh, a bad marriage that she's entered into. And I'd say it's a pre-screwball with some elements of screwball in it. That's fair. It doesn't have the viciousness that screwball comedy has. Yeah, it doesn't have a lot of wall-to-wall -wall physical comedy and slapstick that, that a lot of other screwballs will too. But uh, it's interesting because it, it's more than just your standard romantic comedy. It has screwball elements, as, as Molly was talking about too. Yeah. I want to talk briefly here. Uh, we've already touched on some of these points, but just in the ways in which It Happened One Night might have been innovative or the first of its kind, or for that matter, we can delve into how it would have been controversial in its day if we could save that latter point. So, for example, you've already talked about how it was the first movie to win the big five Oscars. It's also been recognized as among the first Hollywood films to portray a wealthy character undergoing a dramatic reversal of fortune and being romantically involved with an individual from a lower socioeconomic background. And I think it's this narrative decision that allowed the movie to delve into themes of class and privilege in a manner that was innovative for a film set in and released during the Great Depression. But that could be noteworthy or, or uh, innovative for its time. You know, Riskin was a great screenwriter, and he added a lot of uh, things to the film. The biggest change that they made 
was to change Gable's character into a newspaper guy. And he, in the original story, he was an out of work chemist and he was kind of a semi um, upper crust college educated fellow. And it, it is much better that he's a man of the people, proletarian, scruffy, yeah. scruffy, absolutely kind of, you know, he's sassy newspaper guy and he's drunk at the beginning of the film and, uh, newspaper comedies were a big deal, and I'm an old newspaper guy, so I, I love movies like The Front Page. Which you could <laughs> you could say The Front Page is one of the first screwball comedies. Nineteen. Yeah, that's that, that is certainly a case to be made for that. Other ways in which it might have been innovative: uh, realistic portrayal of downtrodden settings. This was maybe somewhat rare for Hollywood films of that time. Again, we're in the Great Depression, but you have a lot of scenes, Joe, depicting you know dirty country roads and bus stations, outdoor shows, run-down countryside, characters eating raw carrots, meager breakfasts. Maybe this is a stark contrast to the Gloria, uh, the more glamorous escapism typically associated with Hollywood productions. Yeah, there are other films that showed the reality of what's going on in the streets, but Capra, Capra had this sort of magic formula, is what he called it, which actually was invented by Robert Riskin because Capra had made a whole series of different kinds of films until Riskin came along with Platinum Blonde, which is a prototype for It Happened One Night and especially Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And again, it's a newspaper guy who's the protagonist and he's in love with, in love with a rich woman, you know, just like in It Happened One Night. That was 1931. And uh, it's a class thing. Capra was acutely uh, conscious of class issues, and so is Riskin. One thing that confuses people, because Capra's films seem to have a lot of contradictory elements, I, until I came along with my biography, Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, people didn't pay attention to... The main reason was that Capra was a conservative Republican, and Robert Riskin was a liberal New Deal Democrat. Riskin had never forgotten his roots, even though he became wealthy and successful. And when Capra became wealthy and successful, it made him more conservative and made him look down on the average person. And But he, he had been like that for quite a while, but he needed Riskin to kind of give him the, the, the kind of New Deal optimism that Capra didn't have personally. But interesting, I don't think Capra really believed in what he was doing uh, consciously. He, subconsciously, I think he could tap into his proletariat side. He he claimed he was poor when he started. That's that's another another myth. Uh, his family actually owned uh, five homes in, in Los Angeles. They're very industrious, and uh, he claimed he worked his way through college on his own. But actually, his family helped put him through college. And you know, there's just a, a wealth of information about Capra. Capra wanted to be a rich person, and uh, for example. In, in the short story, the girl, uh, the young woman is named Elspeth Andrews, which is kind of a hoity-toity rich girl's name. And Capra changed it to Ellen Andrews. And the reason he did that, I found out, was there was a girl at college. He went to what is now Caltech. And there was a rich young woman named Ellen Andrews who he he admired from afar, but she wouldn't go out with him, apparently. Oh, wow. So, so he was expressing a lot of his own kind of rejection feelings because Gable is very sensitive to Colbert's character looking down on him because he's a scruffy newspaper guy. But she she, she becomes aware of his wonderful qualities. And one of the things that's so wonderful in this film, my one of my favorite scenes, 
is when he goes to her father at the end of the film and he presents his bill and the father assumes that he's going to ask for the $10,000 reward for bringing her back. And instead he says, I don't want that money. And he gives him an itemized list of his expenses for bringing her back $39 and 60 cents. The father, (laughs) the father is so thrilled by that, that he, he falls in love with Gable. And then he, Colbert, when she finds out about that, that's what causes her to run off with him. Yeah, Riskin brought this uh, very real concept of money and class, and um, but in a, in a kind of a very benign healing way, whereas Capra had a certain bitterness about class, you know. A person I knew, uh, my editor at Variety, Tom Pryor, who knew both men, he said, Capra provided the schmaltz and Bob provided the acid, is the way he put it. But in some ways, it was the other way around, too, that Riskin had a lot of what we call schmaltz, which was warmth and humor. Mm. And Capra had some schmaltz, too, but he also had some acid. You know, it's kind of a mixture of elements that worked really well. Just to finish his thought on how this film would have been influential or innovative in its day, or in the years to follow for that matter, I believe the movie set new standards and expectations for on-screen romantic relationships, period. Like the palpable chemistry between Gable and Colbert elevated the film beyond conventional romantic comedies of the time. Their natural banter, their flirtatious exchanges, I think it set a precedent for on-screen chemistry that would influence numerous romantic films to come. So here I want to share some comments from Deep Focus Review essayist Brian Eggert, who wrote, It Happened One Night has had an immeasurable effect on the romantic comedy genre, which has paid homage to and spoofed Capra's picture countless times. Whenever a character uses their sex appeal to stop a passing car, whenever a sheet separates a room, whenever life on the road provides a life-altering experience, whenever a bride changes her mind at the last minute, and whenever two bickering adults fall in love, it happened one night is among the influences. I mean, it left a lasting cultural imprint, shaping not just future rom-coms, as we've talked about, and screwballs, but also popular characters and trends. So, Joe, you consider that Gable eats a carrot. He's called Doc, right, by Shapley. And this character, Shapley, is later frightened by the mention of a personality who's named Bugs Dooley. Now, you add all those elements together, and it's not far-fetched to think that maybe this film and and that character, to some extent, influenced Bugs Bunny. Fritz Freeling was uh, credited as saying this is one of his favorite movies. But also, rumor has it, maybe you can debunk this popular myth if it is one that sales of men's undershirts tanked after Cable was shown taking off his shirt to reveal a bare chest. Maybe the film helped popularize hitchhiking. What do you know? Well, you're right about the Bugs Bunny stuff, and that that is verifiable. And uh, a number of people, Bob Clampett, another animator, helped create Bugs Bunny. And uh, mm-hmm. but they were influenced by this, uh, all these things, especially the carrot and and the way Gable talks while he's eating the carrot. And uh, but they, you know, the 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 story that you hear all the time about Gable takes his shirt off and he's not wearing an undershirt. And um, I tried to see if there was evidence of that and i couldn't find any so uh, i i think that's an urban legend but he takes his shirt off which is pretty sexy and he does the striptease in front of colbert which again is a clever screenwriting and directing device it's so well directed uh because you know the man is taking his clothes off and she's kind of skittish and she runs away well this is a pre-code film as you said but it's it's right on the cusp of enforcement of the code but it's it's a film that's provocative for its time, right? Because you ponder how the walls of Jericho scenes were considered risque in 1934 for their suggestion of, 
you have this unmarried man and woman sleeping in the same room together. Uh, for as you said, Gable taking off his shirt, and for Colbert wearing a revealing undergarment in a couple of different scenes. I'm I'm kind of surprised watching this film when you realize what a taboo they had about unmarried people sleeping together in films. Well, actually, she is married, right? Didn't she elope with King Wesley? She has eloped with this guy, but she's headed toward a second ceremony. Granted, but it's that much more risque because she's also a married woman and he's not married. That's right. It's a double taboo in a way. He's he's a single man sharing a um, cabin with uh, a married woman. But the humor is the people who are running the auto camp is what they call it, which we now call a motel. Mm-hmm. And, and late in the story, too, there's another couple. And Capra told me, he said, you know, there's no humor in a scene unless you show a reactive character. And so the humor comes when these old uh, biddies are kind of looking at this couple and saying, you know, what's up with this couple, blah, blah, blah. Right. And it allows the audience to get a, a laugh out of it. Uh, And just showing the people in their cabin is not funny per se, but there's another good scene where a sheriff comes in to try to investigate and they put on a little skit where she's pretending to be this sort of lower class woman from the South and they're having this matrimonial argument and it scares off the sheriff. It probably could be the most screwballiest scene in the movie to me. It feels the most screwball. But yeah, that's a great example, too. Capra was very influenced by Lubitsch, as everybody was. Actually, the ending of It Happened One Night is a Lubitsch touch. Um, a doorway shot. Lubitsch was famous for a doorway innuendo shots where you, you know what's going on behind the closed door, but you don't see it. And that was partly a way of getting around censorship, like in It Happened One Night. The last scene is very body, actually. Some some of the dialogue is very body, but there's a sexual innuendo. I mean, there's a lot of sexual innuendo. It's also very efficient filmmaking. Like, it's a great way to quickly wrap things up while also kind of winking at the audience. Yeah, and and the thing with The Walls of Jericho, it became really a famous um, cinematic touch, uh, and that's just so wonderful. I want to read you briefly. This is uh, Farron Smith-Namey, who did the Criterion Collection essay for this movie. He said, what takes this setup, meaning the Walls of Jericho sequences, from the cute to the ravishing, is what happens when the lights are shut off and the full beauty of Joseph Walker's cinematography takes hold. The rain outside makes the windows sparkle and the light from them outlines Colbert's form as she stands there in her slip, trying to calm her nerves. It's a shot that, at the time, could have revealed more of Colbert's state of undress, and indeed, that's how Capra had planned it. But Colbert objected, and Capra later said the scene was sexier in the near dark. It happened one night, made the sexual longing unmistakable, but it did it in a way that showed future filmmakers how to stay on the right side of the censors. Yeah, that's a good description of that scene. And um, you can't say too much about Joseph Walker's cinematography. He photographed 20 Capra films, Hmm. and he's mostly responsible for the visual style of Capra's work. If you look at Capra's films before Walker and after Walker, they're very pedestrian looking, but Walker was an artist and he was wonderful with um, women in particular. He All the actresses wanted to work for him. Partly he was an inventor and he invented, he had special lenses for each actress. Is that right? Wow. He made Jean Arthur a star partly because he had five different lenses for her and and he photographed um, Colbert so beautifully. And also the rain is a Capra trademark. Capra loves rain and... Um, it's it's an aphrodisiac, Capra said. Uh, rain scenes are always sexy. Uh, so he put that a lot in his films a lot. And, and Walker, 
you know, does wonders with low-key lighting to simulate moonlight, which is romantic. Yes. But it happened one night, looks really good again. It may not look as good as it did in 1934, but, you know, nothing does, even home video doesn't look as good as what it would have looked like in the theater, you know. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm, I really remarked upon the uh, the lighting, especially the night scenes, the rain scenes, how Colbert's eyes shimmer in the dark. It's just beautiful stuff. Getting back to this thought about, you know, the risque nature of the story in the film, it's amazing that we never even see Peter and Ellie kiss, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nor does Capra give us a payoff romantic embrace at the conclusion. As you said, they do this Lubitsch touch where it's just a clever shot of the wall of Jericho blanket tumbling down this cinematically potent suggestive image. But you think about all the numerous instances of sexual suggestiveness in the movie for 1934. Again, it's 90 years old, but if you're watching this in 1934, it had to be a bit of an eye raiser for some people. You have Colbert showing off her legs, Shapely's lines on the bus like, Yes, sir. Shapely's a name, and that's the way I like him. You know, there's nothing I like better than to meet a high-class mama that can snap back at you. Because the colder they are, the hotter they get. That's what I always say. <laughs> Yes, sir. When a cold mama gets hot, boy, how she sizzles. A lot of good examples of how they were kind of pushing the envelope a bit. Yeah, and um, one thing about Capra, unlike certain other directors who are more openly risque, I mean, this, this is one of the more risque Capra films, but he was not a risque director generally. He was a very chaste director. Sometimes if you avoid that, it becomes sexier. Yes. And also the whole thing about delayed uh, passion, you know, and happened one night, the two characters, the sex is inside their heads and their faces. And, and good point. John Ford was asked how you watch a movie. He said, look at the eyes. The secret is in the eyes and mm -hmm. the way they look at each other and um, uh, the unspoken things the, uh, in the great dialogue by Riskin. And you, you, you want them to get together. And by the end of it, they do. And then there's this Lubitsch touch at the end. And you know that they're going to have sex for the first time. But also it makes Gable more likable in a sense because he's such a gentleman he doesn't try to molest her or anything like that and sure. also it, it, it continues the theme of class antagonism she keeps being afraid of him or putting him off she thinks he's going to be a lecher and he's not you know he really doesn't that's not what he's there for he just he sees her as a good story a, a chance to get back to new york and mm -hmm. get his job back on a newspaper after uh, running into trouble because of his drinking and other problems that he has you know, as further proof of how beloved this film and its narrative was, and is for that matter, you know, consider the numerous remakes in its wake, right? Like, even knew her apples from 1945. You can't run away from it from 1956. Yeah. There were several adaptations made in India between 1956 and 2007, I've learned. And it's been spoofed and referenced as well in movies like Laurel and Hardy's Way Out West from 1937 and Mel Brooks' Spaceballs from 1987, as well as the film Bandits from 2001. So I, I said we were going to talk a bit more about the director, Frank Capra, here. What does he bring to this picture? What unique qualities, especially some of the uh, elements of the Great Depression and uh, the plight of the common man uh, that we see from time to time, even on the periphery in a movie like this. So why is he the ideal director for It Happened One Night? It's a complicated question. I go into this for hundreds of pages in my book. That uh, Capra was very conservative, as I say, and he wanted very much to be separate from the common people. Although he had a wonderful line, people often said Capra's heroes were common men. And he said, I didn't think he was common. I thought he was a hell of a guy. 
But even that tells you something about Capra. He didn't see the heroes as common. Clark Gable is common in the sense that he's a, you know, a low-paid newspaper man. But, you know, he's very sophisticated and he's more uh, suave and more calm and collected than Claudia Colbert, who's a rich girl. And part of part of what the audience loved about this film at the time was he has all this savoir faire about uh, he's very self-sufficient. He knows how to survive on a very little money on the road. And she has no clue. And the audience enjoyed the fact that she was so clueless about just the necessities of life. And they made the audience feel um, happy that, well, you know, I may not be rich, but, you know, I, I'm like the guy in the film where I could get by on a few dollars riding a bus, you know. And the scene on the bus when everybody sings The Daring Young Man on the Flying Trapeze, which was done on a soundstage. She said with, to me, she said, you know, with my um, French literal mindedness, uh, I, I kept thinking, how could everybody on the bus know the words to this song? But then she said, while she was watching people singing, and, and she said she looked over at her black maid who was sitting on a chair watching this, and she said her black maid was beside herself with joy watching this scene, and she suddenly realized, oh, Clark is right, and Capra's really got something. And the audience, you know, it doesn't matter if it's kind of far-fetched that everybody's singing the this, this song. So what is he? Is he tapping into populist sentiments with something like that? Yeah, Capra was a complicated figure, but I think that he could tap into his common man side that was suppressed hmm. because the conscious Frank Capra was the guy who wanted to be wealthy, and be he did become a millionaire by the end of the 30s. And revealing thing about Capra, I, I spent two months with him writing his acceptance speech for the American Film Institute Life Achievement Award show, which I wrote with George Stevens Jr. At one point, he said, uh, I'm going to tell you the secret of, of the whole thing. In other words, my career. He said, it's the love of people and the, um, I'm paraphrasing, but the idea that every human being is important, something to that effect. And then he, then he said, that's the formula upon which I based all my films. And I, I read this, and I said, it's pretty good, but, you know, formula doesn't sound very good. Um, and he said, well, what do you think we should change it to? And I said, how about principle? And he said, oh, great. Okay, so he says, that's the principle upon which, that sounds a lot better, doesn't it? And um, he said that on the show, but I realized later, my one of my regrets about that show was uh, when I learned more about Capra, I realized, he didn't see it as a principle. He did see it as a formula. And I was I was kind of romanticizing Capra for the public, which uh, the I, one thing I examined in my book is Capra manipulated the media very cleverly for decades. And the media went along with it because they wanted to create a guy like Frank Capra, you know? Yeah, print the legend, so, right? <laughs> yeah, they created this mythic uh, little guy who rose from alleged poverty to, to riches but never lost the common touch and blah 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 and uh, but to him it was a formula he didn't believe in the um, goodness of the common man so interesting wow yeah but Riskin did so fascinating uh, the real man that you were able to uncover and learn more about which defies like you said the popular myth about Capra but nevertheless whoever's to be credited whether it's Riskin or Capra capitulating whatever that great scene on the bus, especially the sing-along, I mean, it symbolizes this moment of hope and unity amidst adversity. It allows the bus riders to momentarily forget their personal struggles, come together as a community. And then you think of the sequence right after. The hungry woman faints and her child, it's just this scene of pathos, and it highlights the widespread economic hardship faced by many during this era. 
You recall earlier in the movie where Ellie impulsively dumps that perfectly good meal, the steak on the floor. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this sense of hubris and extravagance that contrasts starkly with the prevailing economic conditions of the Great Depression. And then you remember we see uh, Peter gesturing friendly waves to drifters. So there are many little nods to what's going on in the country at the time. Yeah, and you hit on something really important, I think, about this scene on the bus. Not only does it involve everybody into a community, these are just strangers riding a bus together, and but they all discover sort of a common purpose. Uh, it's done in the form of entertainment, but it's very, very moving and very joyous. But it has this wonderful... This, this is part of Capra's brilliance as a director. I, first of all, I think his main talent as a director, I would say, after studying him for a long time, is he was a great director of actors. Mm-hmm. Not only stars, but bit players. He would he loved, he said, I, I treat everybody like a star, even if they only have one line or you know, one minute on the screen. And, and all those bit players on the bus are beautifully cast. But the other thing he's great at is switching moods very, very quickly and very believably. And, and what happens in the scene you described, it shows the bus driver gets into the mood of it and starts singing, which is funny, but he loses control of the yeah. bus and he, he goes into <laughs> goes into a ditch. And then you hear a scream and suddenly the mood has changed and you see a little boy with his mother who's passed out from hunger, as you say. And there's a very touching scene where Gable goes over and and helps the mother and and comforts the little boy and then gives uh, all of his remaining money to the little boy. So Capra is able to change the mood from comedy to pathos and almost tragedy uh, in a heartbeat. It's an excellent point, Joe. Yep. And Francois Truffaut had a great line about Capra's talent in that regard. He said, I have often wept at the tragic moments in Frank Capra's comedy. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. No question. So, yeah, I mean, the Great Depression is front and center, but it's not all that the movie's about, of course. Uh, are there any themes or messages that you can pull from It Happened One Night? Is there something that stands out above the others as far as a takeaway to you? I actually like Capra's films more now, having spent seven years writing that biography and discovering that he wasn't the man that he portrayed himself as being. But I understand where his films are coming from now, because I understand the collaborative nature of the films, Mm -hmm. that Robert Riskin was more the author of the films than Capra. Uh, But I think Capra... Part of his problem was he he underrated the uh, function of a director or... Or to put it another way, he he told me um, directing a film is almost as important as writing a book, is the way he put it. That was a telling comment. He wanted to be a writer, and he he was not a particularly good writer. I read all his early scripts, um, and some of them, most of them were not very good, and and he, he became a director as a kind of fallback position. But then he, he he was foundering, basically. He wanted to say something. He said he wanted to have more social consciousness, partly because he wanted to win an Oscar, and he wanted to be well-regarded like uh, socially conscious uh, writers and directors. And, and so Robert Riskin came into his life and brought in this series of uh, thematic elements, which is um, a, a guy gets riches and he doesn't care about money and and he uses the money to help other people and and um, it's the malleability of social classes uh, which appealed to Capra but he didn't quite know how to bring it out so they were a good team they worked together very well and Mr. Deeds is a great script and um, then they had their falling out uh, while they were making Lost Horizon 
And it's sad that Capra and Riskin couldn't keep working together, but mm. the happy endings are part of what people like about Capra. And sure. Capra engineered these happy endings, even if they're far-fetched, they kind of work. It happened when Knight has a very organic story and a very organic, well-earned happy ending because uh, Claire Gable proves to be a guy with a lot of integrity and she wants to marry him and get rid of her horrible husband. So the father pays off the husband. I, you certainly don't want her to stay with this creepy guy. You want her to run off with Clark Gable. Sure. And it, it all works because it's motivated and uh, they run off together. And it you know when she runs across the lawn with her dress trailing behind her, it's a memorable image of... The runaway bride. Of course. You know? Yeah, no, it's a whole subgenre in itself. But uh, as far as thematic elements to take away, this isn't rocket science. I mean, it's certainly a money can't buy you love kind of a story. I think we can agree. But also, I think for me, some of the major messages include, you know, self-reliance, autonomy, self-discovery, and the importance of thinking for yourself, pursuing your true passions. Because Ellie and Peter... I think they each pursue independence and freedom, but in distinct manners, right? Ellie flees from her domineering father to pursue her marital desires. Peter, he's this tenacious, self-reliant journalist. He seeks autonomy through his career. Their joint odyssey facilitates a deeper understanding of their individual aspirations and desires, but they both undergo significant personal growth and exploration throughout the narrative, and Ellie learns to assert her independence, her agency a bit more. Peter cultivates empathy and compassion, uh, even though he can be very hard-boiled, very hard-edged at times. So their collaborative journey, to me, it serves as this catalyst for uncovering truths about themselves and their intrinsic values. And as a good example, I think about the running gag of how Peter is is constantly lecturing Ellie on how to do things, how to properly dunk a donut, how to ride piggyback, how to hitchhike properly. You think it's simple, huh? No, no. Well, it is simple. It's all that old thumb, see? Yeah, now some people do it like this, or like this. All wrong, never get anywhere. Oh, the poor thing. Yeah, boy, but that old thumb never fails. It's all a matter how you do it, though. You know. Now, you take number one, for instance. That's a short, jerky movement like this. That shows independence. You don't care whether they stop or not. You got money in your pocket, see? Clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but number two, that's a little wider movement. Smile goes with this one like this. That means you got a brand new story about the farmer's daughter. Mm-mm. You figured that out all by yourself, huh? Nah, that's nothing. Yeah, number three, that's a pit. Yeah, that's the pitiful one. You know, when you're broke and hungry and everything looks black? It's a long sweeping movement like this. Got to follow through, though. Oh, that's amazing. Mm, yeah, but it's no good, though, if you haven't got a long face to go with it. This becomes this, you know, running gag in which he asserts his assumed authority on these subjects until the student becomes the teacher, in a way, in the uh, hitchhiking sequence, which demonstrates that, like her, he's learning important lessons in this journey, too, including the lesson that Ellie is not the dizzy dame or the helpless brat that he imagines her to be. Yeah, that's a good summary of the film. And I'd love your emphasis on the collaborative nature of the two characters. They complement each other like a good couple should do. Yeah. Each one has certain skills the other one doesn't have, but they kind of blend, as you say, the hitchhiking scene is a wonderful, famous scene because she shows that his arrogance, male arrogance, is um, inferior to her cleverness and female wiles, and she stops his car. Capper does a wonderful job of, he cuts from the close-up of her leg to the close-up of the wheel of yep. the car going, 
screech, you know. <laughs> but what I what I think is uh, part of what's a, a good th way to look at this film is collaboration is the essence of filmmaking. And I think uh, even Capra would agree with that. But I think, you know, Riskin was never as good without Capra. Capra was never as good mm -hmm. without Riskin. And the chemistry is is a kind of uh, vague word to use, but it's it's a physical phrase uh, between Gable and Colbert. There was something about them that really uh, worked together. And it's funny how their casting was kind of almost an accident. You know, that happens. Sometimes films are, are hurt by bad casting, uh, you know, where you think, oh, geez, this film would be much better if so-and-so had played the role. But in this case, you really wouldn't want anybody else to play those two parts. No. They're, Totally agree. They're, they're so perfect for each other, and they kind of complement each other in terms of style. Yeah. But I think they also, you know, they really respond to each other, even when there's some hostility. There's a certain kind of affection growing between them, and that's kind of, as you say, the root of the screwball genre that people bicker and kind of put each other down and scold each other, but they, they do it with a kind of a a loving look in their eye or whatever. And um, the whole thing about one person shows the other person how to behave. The, another scene that struck me is really interesting. I'd never quite noticed it before. When Gable carries her across a stream mm -hmm. and he's very, you know, it doesn't say anything, but he rolls up his pants and he carries her. You know, it's beautifully shot, but it could be a little dull. So what do they do? Robert Riskin wrote some funny dialogue in there uh, about piggybacking. Time in years I've ridden piggyback. This isn't piggyback. Of course it is. You're crazy. I remember distinctly my father taking me for a piggyback ride. Yeah. And he carried you like this, I suppose. Yes. Your father didn't know beans about piggyback riding. My uncle, mother's brother, has four children, and I've seen them ride piggyback. I bet there isn't a good piggyback rider in your whole family. I never knew a rich man yet who could piggyback ride. You're prejudiced. You show me a good piggybacker, and I'll show you a real human. Now, you take Abraham Lincoln, for instance, a natural-born piggybacker. And in the uh, donut scene, he's giving her a lecture on the art of dunking, and these are kind of ordinary people's things that they know how to do. And she's a rich girl, doesn't know how to dunk a donut. And that's kind of a humble symbol, and it's it's not the most profound thing in the world, but it does show you something about her personality so there's a there's a shrewd knowledge of psychology going on that she's never dunked a donut in her life hitchcock said what people remember in movies is not really the dialogue but things that they see and capra who came from silent films and he was a gag writer he was terrific with visual humor and there's a lot of humor and warmth in this picture and uh, so those are things he brought to his work. He, as I say, he was not a great visual stylist. Usually that was more Joseph Walker, but he had the sense to keep hiring Joe Walker, who was a genius. And um, so all the all these people deserve credit. And the guy who gets forgotten all the time, Samuel Hopkins Adams. If people forgot Robert Riskin, Mr. Adams uh, is is the guy who invented this story. That's right. Yeah, Night Bus. Mm -hmm. Night Bus, you know, when you read the Capra, the stories that Capra made movies out of, they, they're often changed. Like the story that Mr. Deeds is based on, it was very radically transformed by Riskin. But he and Capra worked together on the scripts. Um, they would take a bungalow in a motel um, in Palm Springs, the Palm Springs area, and they would uh, spend a month working on the script and Riskin would draft things on his own. And, the, you know, in other words, Capra had some input 
so he was helping shape the scripts, but Riskin was shaping the direction at the same time. All right, Joe, we're sending 90th birthday wishes to this film. It happened one night, and birthdays are always a time about giving presents. Only it's the fans who continue to receive the gifts. That's what I maintain, especially when a beloved film marks a milestone year. So what do you think is It Happened One Night's greatest gift to viewers? Is it that scene on the bus that you you talked about earlier? You know, you could highlight certain scenes. That's the one that I happen to love. Actually, Capra had a great comment about scenes like that. He said, sometimes you have to stop the plot and just let the audience look at your actors. And he said, that's when they fall in love with the actors. I thought that was a wonderful comment. And I tell my screenwriting students that. And an example he gave of that was in Rocky. There's a, He loved Rocky, which is kind of Capra-esque. And there's a scene in there, he said, when Rocky is walking through a park and he meets a little girl and he talks to this little girl, and I don't even remember what he talks about, but Capra said, that's when you fall in love with Rocky because he's so, so sweet to this little girl. And at first you think he's a palooka, you know? Um, and that's when you fall in love with the characters. And, and that's, that is really what happens in that scene with uh, the bus. Mm-hmm. I think of that, and there are many scenes in Capra films like that where there's a kind of community that gets formed or musical numbers bring people together. But partly it brings together Colbert and Gable. That's when she starts loosening up to. She starts smiling. And she and Gable are just sitting there enjoying these character actors having a good time, too. And that's that's very democratic. It's not all about the stars, too. It's about all these people who look like members of the audience are having a great time. And, you know, I wish I were back in 1934 sitting in a theater watching this. This film, when it came out, it didn't do particularly well in its first quick run. But... Capra said it caught on in the small towns. That's right, yeah. And it played for like a year in Mm -hmm. small theaters. It's amazing. Think about the longevity of that. Like today, there's no way. you got to make your buck quick or it's gone. But back then, a movie could have, uh, you know, second wind, a third wind. Yeah, and um, that was the way they released films. But, you know, even this film was yanked from its New York release after two weeks because the box office was going down. But when you add up all the little towns, I mean, not always little towns, sit in smaller cities, et cetera. And he said the public discovered this picture. And we don't know how much the movie made because it was lumped in to Columbia's uh, records with a lot of other films because they did block booking back then. So we, we have to give a lot of credit to the audience of 1934 for voting with their pocketbooks, you know, 35 cents or whatever, 50 cents cost to get into a movie. This film has been imitated an awful lot. It's one of the romantic comedies that set the mold, like The Awful Truth or The Front Page, you know, those kind of films that are imitated over and over again. This is a road movie. Yep. Many wonderful road movies have been made since then. Uh, but it has all the elements that could never be quite repeated, you know, and... Uh, when people try to imitate a classic film, it's never quite the same. You know, once in a great while, they, they succeed, but usually there's something missing. And, you know, what's missing from the imitations are Clark Cable, Claudette Colbert, Frank Capra, Robert Riskin, Joe Walker, you know. Great point. All right, for my part, it happened one night. I think it has a few greatest gifts that it continues to bestow with every rewatch. So gift number one. It's the ability to make us believe in the spontaneity of love and how it can happen unexpectedly. Gift number two, it's reinforcement of the often implausible notion that opposites can attract. Gift number three, it's remarkable power to increasingly care about and root for two characters who, to me anyway, they're not often very likable or relatable, to be honest. 
especially 90 years later when the dated gender politics and patriarchal values of this film can uncomfortably stand out. And gift number four, I think it's a pair of top performances from the two leads. I maintain that this remains Clark Gable's greatest role and Claudette Colbert's finest hour and 45 minutes, if you will. (laughs) So, yeah, a lot of greatest gifts. Joe, I want you to tell us more briefly about the two books you wrote on this director as we close out our conversation here. So Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, and the other book, Frankly Unmasking Frank Capra. Well, Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, um, is currently in print with the University Press of Mississippi, and I published it in 1992, and I did an expanded version in the year 2000 when I got Capra's FBI files, which took seven years to get. I spent seven years working on that book. It was extremely difficult. I'm very proud of it because when I wrote the AFI tribute to Capra with George Stevens Jr., I got to know Capra well, and I realized he was very different from uh, the man he portrayed himself as in his autobiography, which is kind of like a novel about Hollywood. It's captivating, but it's not accurate. So I did as much research as humanly possible into what caused him. I was really interested being a Capra fan why his first 45 years were tremendously successful and then the last 45 years were a disaster pretty much and his career fell apart and one of the main reasons was he was targeted by the red scare in hollywood even though he was one of the most patriotic people you could imagine he he informed on his screenwriters mostly and he blamed his writers those writers made me do it which is tragic and um he was ashamed of that and I wrote a, a 600-page book called Frankly Unmasking Frank Capra, which came out in 2019, all about the research and the writing of the biography. And I think people will find it very interesting what a biographer has to go through to tell the truth about an, you know, an important American figure. And it was a four-year legal battle to get this book published. But I think people who are interested in the truth about Capra will find it fascinating. And I'll just end by saying... Oddly enough, paradoxically, as I mentioned, I like his films even more now because I understand where they're coming from. You know, I understand why sometimes a film seems liberal in some parts and conservative in other parts and why characters behave in kind of odd, complex, paradoxical ways. It's because Capra was not the sole author of his work, which was one of the things that bothered him the most deeply. He was really upset that he needed screenwriters. But if you um, care about the collaborative nature of filmmaking, which it happened one night, shows to be very effective and, and creates some of our beloved classics, um, I think you'll understand it a lot better from from reading the biography. And then if you're interested in that, you could find out what it took to write the biography by reading, frankly, Unmasking Frank Capra. Which I strongly recommend and endorse. I have a copy on my shelf, so check those books out, folks. Joe, this was, uh, boy, such a treat once again. I had a wonderful time with you foraging through the lush cinematic forest that is It Happened One Night. And just want to thank you again for all your insights, your memories, your opinions on this Capra Classic. And we will talk to you down the road, hopefully. Thank you very much, Eric. It's good to be back with you. And um, and uh, we've had several really wonderful talks over the years, and I hope to have more. I've treasured every one of them, as I will this one. So thanks again, sir. We will talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks a lot, Eric. Bye. Great stuff from Joseph McBride, who we can always count on for well-informed insights, opinions, and analyses, right? That's our man in the know, Joe. Thanks again, my friend. Next up, it's time again for Standing Ovations. 
This is where I give a shout out to a movie, book, TV program, podcast, or other work that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers just like you and me. For February, I'm going to tip my cap to Netflix. Yes, you heard that, Netflix. Beginning last month, the streamer launched a new content row of curated classics from 1974, that's 50 years ago, which fall under a general banner it calls Milestone Movies, the Anniversary Collection. On my menu, these flicks appear under the row titled Critically Acclaimed Movies, so I'm not sure how it looks on your screen, but you can find these. While a few of these films have fallen off the platform since January, this impressive collection of 50-year-old works has included standouts like Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Black Belt Jones, Blazing Saddles, California Split, Chinatown, The Conversation, Death Wish, The Gambler, The Great Gatsby, It's Alive, The Little Prince, The Lords of Flatbush, The Parallax View, The Sting, and The Street Fighter. Now, word is that Netflix will also roll out anniversary honors for films turning 40 years old in April, movies hitting the 30th birthday mark in July, and motion pictures from 2004 in October. Apparently, America's most popular streaming service has caught anniversary fever, and thankfully there's no cure in sight, so check them out while you can. I had a lot of fun catching up with Blazing Saddles, The Sting, and The Lords of Flatbush in recent weeks. And I'm looking forward to our rewatch of Chinatown soon and finally screening California Split for the first time. I take it as a good sign that, you know, a streamer overwhelmingly known for new content and primarily targeting Gen Y and Gen Z is supplementing its library with some vintage cinematic fare from the 1970s. Let's hope it lasts. Did you know that Cineversary has its own website? That's right, we actually now have a vanity URL that's easy to remember, which will take you to a freshly designed portal where you can quickly access the latest episode of your favorite podcast, as well as all of our previous installments. Now it's a lot easier to spread the good word about our show to your friends and family. You simply tell them to visit Cineversary.com. Pretty simple, right? That's Cineversary.com. We also have a custom email address just for you. Now, if you ever want to share feedback on our show or offer suggestions for future installments, or maybe you just have a question about Cineversary, send it to us at Cineversarypodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can really help our show grow by spreading the good word about the Cineversary show to your peeps. Even better, please leave a positive online review and rating, which significantly helps us to get discovered by new listeners. So if you use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, some of these other services, simply search for the Cineversary page, look for a link that says something like ratings or reviews, click that link, and leave a review and or rating. While you're at it, take a moment to like us on Facebook. We also have a presence on Twitter. Our handle is at CineversaryPod, where you can easily tweet or follow us. And if you want to go an extra step in your support of our show and help keep us ad-free, please consider making a monetary donation to the Cineversary Podcast by visiting tinyurl.com slash donatecineversary. We really appreciate your support. Lastly, have you checked out my Cineverse Group website? Yeah, it's easy to get confused by these similar-sounding names, Cineversary, Cineverse, Tomato, Tomato. But Cineverse is actually the name of my private film discussion group I founded back in 2005 that continues to meet weekly on Zoom. Every week, the Cineverse group watches, researches, and discusses a different movie, and I create a summary write-up, call it a mini-essay if you will, 
on that movie that gets posted to the Cineverse group blog. So if you want to enjoy reading in-depth content that examines different discussion-worthy motion pictures, including classic Hollywood films, independent features, foreign masterworks, modern movies, and silent-era standouts, then visit cineversegroup.com, simply spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group.com. Fun fact, every posted article on cineversegroup.com includes a link to a recording of our group discussion of that particular film, with me leading the conversation as moderator. So if you like what I'm doing on the Cineversary podcast, you might also want to give a listen to some of our Cineverse Group recordings, which are podcasts of a different sort. Again, head over to cineversegroup.com where you can check out some interesting text and audio content on a variety of films, not necessarily celebrating a milestone anniversary. You've come this far with us. That means you want to know what's on tap next. Well, for March, we're going to take a twisty trip back to post-war Vienna, circa 1949, and pay homage to one of the finest noirs ever and a movie voted the greatest British film of all time. Join us then for a 75th anniversary celebration of The Third Man, directed by Carol Reed. Until then, this is your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies because they're not getting older, they're getting better. Thanks, as always, for giving us a listen. (laughs) 